Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Gunster on the Go, Florida's podcast for business. I'm your host, Holly Goodman, a shareholder with the Gunster Law Firm in Florida. On this program, we cover the latest developments in employment law, ranging from important changes in EEOC guidance to new Florida laws affecting your workforce. Although this podcast does not provide legal advice, we will discuss our opinions on how these cutting-edge employment issues could affect your business. We have an exciting guest with us here today. I spent several years working down the hall from him before he headed off to Washington, D.C. I am joined today by Keith Sonderling, a commissioner on the U.S. EEOC. Since joining the EEOC, one of Commissioner Sonderling's highest priorities has been ensuring that artificial intelligence and workplace technologies are designed and deployed consistent with longstanding civil rights laws. And so today, I am thrilled to be having a discussion and catching up with my former colleague as we talk about the impact of AI on the workforce, particularly from the HR perspective. Keith, it's really great to have a chance to chat with you again. Thanks for having me. And like I say, I've worked for two places in my life, Gunster and the government, and both of them started with a G. So uh, it's good to be back. It's great to have you. And you know, since you first joined the EEOC in January of 2021, you've been focusing on the impact of AI and HR decision-making. So why don't you tell us a little bit about why you focused on AI and what exactly we mean when we say AI? And yeah, I made this a priority of mine and the agency since I got here. You know, we have a lot on our plate here at the EEOC. We are the civil law enforcement agency that deals with all workplace discrimination and all cases of discrimination, whether it's private sector, federal government, or state government. In addition to the day job, I wanted to be more proactive and say, you know, what are the issues that HR leaders are going to be facing in the future? And at that time, I heard about artificial intelligence. And, you know, a lot of people were kind of brushing it aside at the time because they were saying that, oh, this is related to workplace automation and robots replacing human workers. And that was only going to be applicable to certain industries like manufacturing or retail or fast food. And it wasn't going to impact us. But what I found was that AI was already widespread in the HR space, making actual employment decisions instead of those decisions made by HR professionals, which is the way it's been done since there's been work. And in diving into that earlier, we found that there was very little guidance, very little guardrails in how to use this technology. And I think a lot of that too is because people are confused and don't understand what artificial intelligence was. So this was a couple of years ago. And then earlier this year, late last year, ChatGPT came into the equation. And that completely threw a wrench in all that work that we've been doing Because now everyone understands AI, everyone understands ChatGPT because you can use it and you can have fun with it and you can generate things. So now there's even more confusion about how ChatGPT is going to affect and impact the workforce. So I like to break them down into two buckets and it is important to talk about generative AI. So generative AI is obviously AI that's going to make things and you're seeing it writing, making movies, making songs. How is that going to impact HR? Well, now for the first time, you know, that original automation conversation I just told you about was generally for certain workers, but now generative AI is coming for knowledge workers. So lawyers, doctors, accountants, copywriters, all these people whose job were safe from automation are now at risk. And for so for HR professionals, now the big talk around generative AI and chat GBT is how are we going to use that to displace workers? Not to make employment decisions, which is how machine learning is being used related to HR AI tools, 
But the biggest issue right now is you're seeing all these stats. Goldman Sachs says that 300 million jobs are going to be displaced by generative AI. And so for HR leaders, they're getting pressure to implement this technology. And the question then is, well, who are we going to now displace their jobs using ChatGPT and generative AI? And that's a significant issue for HR for a few reasons. Number one, that's going to impact your workforce. So when you are replacing knowledge workers with AI, who is that likely going to impact the most? Your older workers who are generally paid more and normally your first in, first out workers, the newer workers who companies have spent so much efforts to diversify their workforce, to get in different workers in their applicant pool and into their companies. And they may be the first ones out. And we're already seeing stats by McKinsey had a whole report out there that generative AI is going to impact women. It's going to impact African-Americans more than others. So from an HR perspective, from a legal perspective related to generative AI, it's going to turn into some of these old-fashioned reduction in workforce cases. And that's what I'm trying to get the message across now. And HR departments and labor employment lawyers know how to deal with that. They know how to deal with reductions in workforce. We saw significant rifts after 2008 with the recession. So if HR departments are not mindful about the impact that displacing certain teams or workers are going to have and the potential disparate impact claims that are going to come with them, going to be serious liability. So think about that from that perspective. So using generative AI, you're replacing whole teams. Who's that going to impact? The second part of it is we're seeing now AI is out there to help augment workers' tasks, to do some of their tasks for them, to make it faster, efficient. Well, you still have to understand that technology and you still have to be able to use that technology. And who's that going to impact the most? Older workers who may not be familiar with this advanced technology, who may not be trained on some of the computer tools that you need to, and also disabled workers who may need additional accommodations to use some of these more advanced tools. So you can even see, forget about just the job displacement side, also for the current workforce to upskill them and reskill them to be able to use these tools taking into account any disabilities, taking into account that it may impact older workers if they can't use these tools the same. I think what's really important about breaking it down in those two buckets, hearing you talk about it, what really strikes me is that what I'm hearing from you is a reversion to a lot of the things that we are all already familiar with, the concepts of disparate impact, the concepts of looking at our workforce when there's a reduction in workforce and making those analyses to see whether or not we are having a disproportionate impact on one particular protected class or another, and using some of those standard regulations that we're all familiar with. But I still see, of course, a call with especially generative AI and a lot of the parade of scary things that are coming out about generative AI for there to be additional regulations in the workplace. So knowing that we already have a lot of our rank and file longstanding employment laws on the books in the HR field, do we need additional federal regulation on the topic of workplace AI? Are they even making progress on that front? Well, this is the hottest topic in Washington, D.C. right now. Now that everyone can use ChatGPT and OpenAI is accessible to everyone, everyone in Congress wants to talk about it. You're seeing hearings across the board, and now we need to rush to regulate it for its uses. And you know, from my perspective, from the executive branch, I can't get involved in that conversation because, as you noted, there are longstanding laws that apply to employment decisions, and we can't lose sight of that. And even if Congress creates a new AI commission or requires the EEOC to look at algorithms or companies to give it over, you know that is not what we are familiar with. 
At the EEOC, we regulate employment decisions. HR professionals know how to make employment decisions. Labor and employment lawyers know how to deal with employment decisions. And at the end of the day, these AI tools using machine learning and a lot of the traditional now AI before the chat GPT to actually make employment decisions such as salary, such as performance reviews, such as sifting through resumes, such as creating job decisions. At the end of the day, there is some sort of employment decision associated with that. And that is what the EEOC is going to regulate. And it doesn't matter who is making that decision, whether it's the robot or whether it's a HR professional, the employer is going to be liable for that action. So that is where I believe we need to focus. Now, a lot of people in Washington, D.C. want to have big hearings and want to talk about the black box of AI algorithm and how we need transparency and we need to see the codes. But look, you know, as labor and employment lawyers, as HR professionals, if we see the black box of an algorithm, what are we going to do with it? It's just a bunch of numbers. And, you know, we're not trained in there. And it's going back to, well, we are trained in how to see if there's discrimination in an employment decision. And that's what we know. That's what HR professional lawyers know. That's what labor and employment lawyers know. And from my perspective, I think it's a big distraction to be talking about legislation because it allows people to think, that there's no laws in place, that you can use these tools unregulated. And that's not true because, you know, Title VII, the Americans with Disability Act, for each use of AI tools, those laws apply 100%. And we can't lose sight of that. And I think that that's really important is having that refocus on how these existing laws are going to apply even in an AI world. And the EEOC has issued some guidance documents around that in the last couple of months, especially, particularly with the ADA and then with the focus on disparate impact. Um, so how do existing EEOC regulations and employment laws apply in HR decision making when AI is involved? Exactly right. The same way. And, you know, so many people want to talk about disparate impact where you have a neutral policy uh, discriminating against certain groups unintentionally. And that's where a lot of the AI discussion is. And, you know, breaking that down into terms that HR professionals can understand, you know, a lot of that's based on data set discrimination and data discrimination. What does that mean for HR professionals? Well, the data that the algorithms are being fed, it's just your applicant flow or it's your applicant pool or your current workforce. And if that applicant pool is made up of one race, one gender, one national origin, the algorithm is going to think that that may be the predominant characteristic that it needs to look at to make an employment decision, which is unlawful. And that's going to give you unlawful results. And, you know, there's a few couple examples of this that are very well known. You know, one of them is one of these companies went to an employment AI resume screening tool that promised diversity, equity, inclusion. And they said that these are my best candidates. Go find what makes them so great. And the algorithm, the fancy computers and the machine learning went through and set to see what patterns made these employees great. And it came back and said the most likely indicators of success at this company is being named Jared and having played high school lacrosse. <laughs> and this was a program that was built for diversity. But why was that? It's because that's what the computer was told to look at. And it was given you know, those individuals and saying, find me what their skills are. And that's what it found because it wasn't designed properly. It wasn't looking to what the underlying skills were there outside of their gender, outside of their race. And it made a discriminatory hiring decision. But that's where a lot of people are. There's other examples of that well-known too, with female resumes being scored lower because the majority of the applicants were male. So, so much of the discussion is around that disparate impact theory related to data discrimination and just having a biased data set giving biased results. But I'm also trying to raise awareness of that these tools can be used to intentionally discriminate. 
And a lot of people are saying, well, wait a minute, they're not alive. They're not sentient. They don't have a mind of their own. How can they actually intentionally discriminate? Well, you can have the most diverse applicant pool. You can do all your acquire diversity recruiting if you're a federal contractor, go to all the different places and have a pool that's indicative of your local jurisdiction, you know, based on those demographic breakdowns. And then you can have the right skills in there in the AI looking for the right skills. But then you can have a person go in there and inject their own bias by screening out certain individuals. So with a few clicks, you can exclude all women from the applicant pool. And you know, there's a stat that talent acquisition professionals take seven seconds to look through a resume. Mm -hmm. So if I wanna remove all female resumes from that pool, that takes time to click through all of them and delete them and to see if it's a female name, women's college, et cetera. But now with these algorithms, in 0.7 seconds, you could delete hundreds of thousands of female resumes or even resumes that may have a gender neutral name to look for patterns to see versus male versus female, or use religion, national origin, race, any other protected characteristic that may not be obvious, but the machine learning can pick that up. And with a few clicks, you can scale discrimination like we've never seen before. And the company is going to be liable for those decisions made by that algorithm, made by that actor within the company who's clearly probably violating the company policy, certainly violating the law. So these tools can be used to intentionally discriminate. And on the front end of these applicant cases, all those applicants that were excluded, if they're qualified, will have a case. So you can see just the scale of how large these cases can get if it's not properly used. So that's really where the two concepts that I just explained properly used in, with that example and carefully designed. So if it's designed properly, if the AI is going to be able to understand that we're not looking for these protected characteristics, that we're looking for the underlying skills. And if it's used the right way as well, saying, okay, well, now we're going to actually sort these resumes and make a decision through the machine learning based upon skills, not upon protected characteristics that actually can be used to help find the best candidates for the right jobs. I think that that's a really important point because the issue isn't, and from what I'm hearing from you and understand from some of your publications, from other your speaking engagements, the issue isn't that you think AI in employment decision-making is a negative. In fact, it can have positive benefits in HR as well. But the key is making sure that businesses are keeping in mind that it needs to be properly set up, it needs to be properly tailored, and that they need to be doing audits and reviews to make sure that it's not having a discriminatory impact and that they are not being used in an intentionally discriminatory way. Would you agree with that? And this is where it all comes from. This is how it's going to work. And this is how AI, these tools are going to be funded more, they're going to be developed better, and they're going to see mass implementation. And that is around the corporate governance that needs to be built when you're buying these systems. So unlike other AI tools, which companies are familiar with using, let's say, you know, using AI to make deliveries faster, using AI to make widgets faster, those software are sold to be implemented right away, set it and forget it, and it's going to save you money and make you money. But when it comes to AI and HR, it cannot be that way because you're dealing with some of the most fundamental civil rights we have in this country, the ability to enter and thrive in the workforce without those protected characteristics coming into play. So because of that, you have to build this structure. And what does that mean? You need to have policies relating to who's going to use it, just like you have other HR policies. You know, for instance, companies have sexual harassment policies. Why is that? Because if a manager sexually harasses, they want to be able to say, this was not a systemic issue within our organization. We are against sexual harassment from the top. Employees can report it. And if you sexually harass, you're going to be fired. And that limits liability significantly. And that's what needs to happen with AI. 
So only certain people trained by the vendor are going to be allowed to use this product. We're going to limit the product to only be able to make lawful employment decisions. And if you use it the wrong way, you're going to be immediately fired. So, you know, doing something like that, if somebody wants to use this program intentionally to discriminate, which the examples I gave you before, at least from a corporate perspective, you're saying this is the one person, they use it the wrong way and they were terminated and it really allows it to limit liability significantly. Now, the second part of it is proactively doing audits. And this is where a lot of the states are going. We've seen in New York with their local law, California may be going this way and what's going on in the EU. You know, there's nothing preventing employers because you're making employment decisions with these tools to test the systems before they're ever used, to actually do audits to see, okay, well, you know, here is the skills we believe are required for this job. This is what algorithms are going to look for in these resumes. Did it actually produce that results or did it then exclude certain workers in the workforce? So you can prevent discrimination from ever occurring by testing in advance. And that's where this needs to go because it's being used to make employment decisions, whether fully or having a human in the loop to make those employment decisions. There's just a lot of risk and liability with using AI and HR, but that doesn't mean you can't use it. You just need to do a lot more around it for it to actually work. And I think that's really important. And then the second part where a lot of companies aren't really thinking about the benefits from this, aside from more diverse hires, getting people in the door, using their talents, forgetting about a resume that actually finding what makes these workers great and and using AI to put them in the jobs that they're most suited for, even though they may have not applied for that job, using AI for pay equity, you know, the list of is endless of how AI is being used to improve HR functions. But let's talk about it from a litigation perspective, from a federal investigative perspective. So if you're actually using AI the right way, you've tested it, you've designed it properly, and you're using it for the right results. If you are accused of employment discrimination and the EEOC shows up to your company, you then have an auditable record of everything that went into the employment decision, which right now, if the EEOC shows up to your company and we see an employment discrimination, a decision that was made that is now being challenged, what do we have to do? We do document requests, we do depositions, and in there we say, did you discriminate against this person because they were a female? Did you discriminate against this person because of this religion? And very rarely does anyone admit that they have bias. Any, very rarely does anyone admit that they made an unlawful employment decision. And so that's what we're left with now. So in AI, in a sense, well, now you have a very traceable, transparent way of saying, well, here's exactly who we put into the algorithm. This is the local workforce, or this is the pool of candidates that were qualified for the job. Here are the skills we put into the algorithm to look for it based upon the market, based upon what we believe was a business necessity for this location, for this job, using our best judgment for business. And here are the results that we got. And here's how they were selected. And people using these tools didn't have the ability to discriminate versus having what we have before, which is the black box of the human brain. So, so many people just want to look at this as a negative, saying the black box, the algorithm, we don't know how it works. We don't know what goes into it. Well, you don't really need to know that technical side because the government's never going to know the technical side. You just look to see what you went in, what skills you used to put in there and what the results were, which is better than what we're dealing with right now, which is sometimes somebody scribbling notes or just trying to backtrack an employment decision once you're in a defensive posture. So I really think even from a law enforcement perspective, from a defense perspective, having that additional information just puts you in a better position than employers who don't. And look, everything I'm talking about certainly costs money. 
an additional layer of in addition to spending the money on the software. Now you have to build all these audits and these handbooks around it, but you're just going to be in such a better position because it's no longer a question if you're going to use this software, because the way the market is, the cost of it, the competitiveness of the workforce, you're going to have to use it. It's how are you going to use it and what are you going to do to make sure it works? And look, if we have two investigations where one company did everything I just said, you know, worked with counsel, made sure it works properly versus the other company that just took the sales pitch and bought it and it made a discriminatory hiring decision. They can't show everything they did in advance to build that governance around it. Who's going to be in a better position? The company that really went above and beyond and did all this auditing and did the handbooks and did the training. I think that just puts you in such a better position because we have such limited resources when it comes to our investigation. And we're not going to spend our time there on a company that has done all this and can show all that audited framework versus a company that did nothing. So that's really my plea for companies using this or counsel who can advise on this is to get involved in that equation. And there you have it for our listeners. We have from a sitting EEOC commissioner, a plea that not only do you be proactive in your use of AI, but that you ensure that you set it up properly from the beginning, that we look at our policies and our procedures around who will access AI and how it will be used and that we do audit testing so that we can position ourselves better in the defense of claims. And as an employment defense attorney, I'm going to echo that plea and agree that these are things that all businesses should be looking at, especially if they're considering using AI either now or in the future, because I do agree. I think that this is where we're heading, and it's not a matter of if, but when. Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really great chatting with you, even if it was just for a brief few minutes about what is truly a cutting edge topic and something that I think that we should all be looking at as we continue to move into this AI frontier. Thank you for having me. And I will leave you that our laws may be old, but they're not outdated and they apply equally to decisions made by computers as they do to humans. And it's really important to keep that in mind as companies start to buy the software, develop the software more. Thank you again to Commissioner Sonderling. You've been listening to Gunster on the Go, a podcast brought to you by Gunster, Florida's law firm for business. To learn more about our podcast and to stay up to date on future episodes, you can find us at gunster.com forward slash on the go or subscribe to the program through Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is Holly Goodman. Until next time. <laughs>